Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The Cleveland Indians have moved too slowly to change their name, so it sounds like they're going to be nameless for a year. It's one of the stories we'll be talking about on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Chris Wernowski. Good Monday morning to all. Good morning. Monday. Howdy. Less than two weeks from Christmas and a Christmas it's going to be in the plague year. Let's get started. What is going on with the Cleveland Indians announcing late on a Sunday night through a national media outlet they will go without their Indians name for the 2021 season? Jane Cahoon, I don't get this. This is not a huge step because they've already announced they're switching out. They're they're trying to design a new name and all the marketing around it. So so this is incremental. They won't be called the Indians this year. But why do you think they did this the way they did it on a late Sunday night? Yeah, it's weird. You know, when I saw the alert on that, I thought, well, this is old news, isn't it? We knew they That's were going to change the Exactly name. what I said right. when Chris were asking. <laughs> but, uh, and personally, being a big baseball fan, I mean, I'm much more concerned about, you know, the great players we're going we're gonna to be losing uh, than I am about this name thing. But it was weird because, you know, you'd think they would want to be hanging on to their loyal fan base and then they'd sort of drop this, you know, national piece of national news you know it's just it's weird well the indians have a better relationship i think with the media in cleveland than any of the other professional sports teams i mean they they, they just they have it and people talk to them so i just don't get why you would you know slap them silly by going to the new york times with this when they've been covering you and spending all this time focused on the team. And when this started to roll last night and thinking, why would they do it? I could not come up with a reason. I'm usually pretty good about speculating on a reason. I can't come up with one. Maybe, maybe because maybe, they wanted to irritate President Trump so he could tweet about it, which he did. <laughs> but, but he would have tweeted about it if any of the news media in Cleveland had done it. And releasing it on a Sunday night. I just... It's a strange thing for them to do. Kind of stupid. Maybe they thought that we would all have this, the reaction that you and I had, Jane. Well, this isn't news. But by going to the New York Times, that they can create a bigger thing. Because, I mean, you know, you saw this one everywhere in about 30 seconds last night. And maybe you're right. Maybe they're trying to divert attention from the fact that they're going to stink because they're getting rid of all the expensive players and they're not going to have a team to put on the field. And this creates a different conversation. I mean, I've already had emails from people who think that we have a direct line on this suggesting what the name should be. My favorite was the guy saying it should be called the tribe because we're the tribe <laughs> and this would honor the name. And it's like, you really don't get what this whole thing no, is no, about. No, no, no. <laughs> but, but people think that we are the avenue for renaming the team. So they send us stuff. It, it's just like, okay, that's not really our role. We can... 
right about it. Anyway, weird, weird decision by the Indians. And I imagine that uh, others will be asking the question. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Is Mike DeWine's curfew working to slow the spread of the coronavirus? Or does Cuyahoga County's tripling of COVID-19 deaths in one week mean things are getting worse? Jane Cahoon, we kept talking as we went into Thanksgiving that the post-Thanksgiving surge would be overwhelming. And we're now more than two weeks beyond, right? Or, right? Two weeks, right? Uh, <laughs> time is all, you <laughs> Maybe know. Maybe a week a and a half. Right? <laughs> um, but, but we're not. I, it doesn't feel like we're seeing the explosive surge. And then Rich Exner did a story that kind of put it into perspective. So where do we stand? Yeah, well, he Rich did look at the um, data. I mean, I, I guess you could look at this any number of ways. I mean, any way you look at it, the numbers are still staggeringly high. But as far as, you know, in terms of relating it to Governor DeWine's uh, overnight curfew, Rich um concluded that maybe it it might be related to a slowing of the rate of increase. (laughs) (laughs) It's still going up, but it's going up more slowly. Something like that. So uh, on five separate days in the last week, the state reported at least 10,000 new cases. And that probably changed over the weekend because there was another 10,000 plus day. But anyway, um, and as we know, deaths are are at or near record highs. But you know, the the um, he looked at the records that estimate when people got sick, not when the cases were actually reported. You know, to get just a better handle on this trend. So during the three weeks leading up to the curfew, the daily averages increased really sharply from about five thousand on November fifth to over seventy seven hundred for the seven days ending November 12th, and then uh, went way up to more than 8,500 by the time the curfew order began. But then the following week, it it increased a lot more slowly, about 9,000 for the seven days from November 26th through December 3rd. So that does show a trend line of of slowing with an increase that's not as sharp. But um, locally, we've got some bad news here about Cuyahoga County, um, they, the, the indicators, well, actually in the whole seven county Northeast Ohio area, some, some key end indicators are continuing to just, to just get worse. And in, in Cuyahoga County, the, the death toll like tripled, um, last week over, over that of the previous week. So it's, you know, what do you make out of this? It's, it's all bad. It's just maybe the curfew made a little bit of a dent. It's hard to tell. I mean, you would have thought we'd be seeing a much bigger, a much bigger increase around now. And it doesn't feel like we are. And I, I, you know, who knows what the, the cause of it is, but it's a, it was an you interesting story. Actually, by you know, we're, we're good on Thanksgiving. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it, it, rich, rich, like he always does puts it into perspective. I mean, I, we, we asked the question last week, I think during the Thursday briefing or maybe Friday, what is happening? Are, are, are we seeing the increase? Has the curfew meant anything? And Rich's Exner is is finding those kind of maybe. So we'll have to see what uh, what the next few weeks bring. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Does Cuyahoga County look likely to take up Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's offer of the National Guard to help run the coronavirus ravaged jail? And why have the county sheriff and prosecutor sued the state over inmates at the jail? 
Chris Ranowski, a couple of stories kind of merging into one at the end of last week. Yeah, the timing on all of this was kind of unusual, but uh, it does look like Cuyahoga County will likely take up the governor's offer to provide some National Guard folks to to help cover for uh, staffing shortages at the jail here, which has been hit pretty hard by the coronavirus. We got kind of a one-two punch last week where on one day we wrote a story where they had broken the record of number of cases, and then by the next day that number had exploded. And you know, there's really kind of no end in sight for it right now. It's things are, things are pretty bad there. And it's, it's, it's hard to sort of, you know, see a lot of optimism there, right? Immediate in the immediate, I, I, you know, I, I hopefully they'll be able to get this under control, but the governor made this proclamation statewide in response to quote, the significant number of COVID-19 infections among state, county and local corrections officers that reduce staffing levels required to maintain safe and adequate security at some facilities, which, you know, staffing has been an issue at the Cuyahoga County Jail for a long time. And and this, you know, uh, we're, we're at the point now where several, I, I think a couple dozen corrections officers and, and staff members at the jail currently have the virus that's on top of, of hundreds of, of inmates. Um, so we're, we're, we're going to see that uh, happen. We're going to, we're going to start seeing the National Guard come in and actually provide security at the jail and, and staffing there. Um, on top of that, we, we saw the, the, uh, Sheriff Dave Schilling and prosecutor Michael Malley filed a lawsuit asking the Ohio Supreme Court to order the state prison system to start admitting all inmates from the Cuyahoga County Jail who had been sentenced to prison. There has been this sort of bureaucratic back and forth going on between the state prison system and the county jail um, that that began sort of early in the in the pandemic when the state system established a a mandatory 14 day quarantine before they would accept any inmates that were convicted of a crime and transferred from the county jail to the state jail. So they would have to quarantine at the jail here. And then the other thing they would have to do is they would have to quarantine once they get to the prison, the state prison system as well. And they're sort of saying, well, if you're making them quarantine here and you're making them quarantine there, can't we get them out of here faster? Because you really only need to quarantine them at one, one place. I think, you know, part of one of the reasons that the jail population here has gone up is because they haven't been able to transfer a lot of inmates out of here. I think the, the number of, of, of prisoners that we could transfer out of this jail into the state system is 300 to maybe 400, according to O'Malley. So, but I don't know, you know, I mean, I, I don't know that that addresses the problem so much as it just moves it somewhere else, but, but the Supreme court will have to rule on this and I suspect it won't take its time. So, um, so we will probably get an answer on this this week or next week. Yeah, it's I get I get what the state's doing is, you know, you know, that the, the prisons were rocked by this thing at the beginning and they had to scramble to keep it down. And one of the things they did is we won't take inmates unless we know they don't have covid coming in. But then that put the onus on the jails, which were doing OK. But now with covid out of control in the community, there's a feeling in county government circles that that what's happening in the jail was inevitable, that if the coronavirus is raging in the community. You can't keep it out of a collection of people in in tight quarters in the jail. It's just a bad situation. Sounds like the the Metro Health has got its hands full over there trying to keep people healthy. Uh, have we gotten any indication about how many of these prisoners, inmates, might be showing serious symptoms? I don't have an updated count. I think we had a count as of last week, and it was 
237 on Friday were people who, who actually had it. And then they had another 570 inmates that were in isolation, which is like when you think about where we were before the virus and how, you know, they were dealing with issues of, of where to put inmates already. You know, you, you have to wonder how, what isolating 570 people in a jail that small that already has, that has staffing and, and, and space issues, you know, it's, it, it has, a, this is a logistical nightmare. And I think, yeah, but, but, but my question isn't about how many people tested positive. As I understand it, it's a pretty small percentage that actually have symptoms. Um, no, no I, I, I think we have, let's see, we have people who have tested positive. That number is actually 237 as of right. Friday. So, yeah. but yeah, but it's, I mean, either way, anyway, slices, it's very bad. <laughs> this is very bad. And they, they, I, I don't know how you get a handle on this at this point, but, but we'll see, you know, where we, Adam, Adam Faris is back today and he's going to be checking on this. So we'll have an update today. I'm sure. You're listening to this week in the CLE with Christmas, a week from Friday. Why are health officials worried about how many Ohioans will travel to be with friends and relatives? Laura Johnston, the numbers came out last week about how many traveled for Thanksgiving and frankly, I was stunned by how high it was. That's what the fears are about, right? Yeah, exactly. I was stunned when I saw this, too. Um, no one really listened at Thanksgiving. More than six out of 10 Ohioans left their homes on the holiday, um, although it is not clear how far they traveled or for, her, for how long or who they interacted with. So we don't know if they had a massive dinner at grandma's house with all the cousins or if they rented a cabin in the woods. But the percentage of those people who didn't travel was 39%. It was about 8% higher than last year, according to a California-based tech company called SafeGraph. It uses cell phone location data to um, survey people. And uh, Susan Glazer did the story on this, our travel reporter. Uh, she talked to Longwoods International, which is a travel research firm based in Columbus. They think that people are listening more to the coronavirus restrictions than they have in the past. And there was a survey last week that Longwoods did that 15% of American travelers have canceled upcoming December holiday trips. And that was just in the last past two weeks. They think more are going to follow. But I don't know. The uh, the bad numbers in Ohio and remote school has made a couple of families I know like rent houses in Florida and drive down just to stay for a couple of weeks. So I don't I don't know that we're not going to get travelers. Well, as we discussed previously, the, the we don't seem to be getting rocked by a post Thanksgiving surge. The numbers are high, as Jane Coon has previously pointed out. But there was the predictions of a monstrous increase after Thanksgiving, and we're kind of where we were. I wonder if all those people who travel, and six out of 10 is a lot. I mean, normally it's 31%, and this year 39% stayed home, which is strange. But maybe they, they wore masks. Maybe they took the precautions necessary to see their relatives. You know, John Houston was having a big family get-together, and he was going to do it outside and keep all the fam- f- separate households at separate tables. Maybe that kind of stuff worked. And so that's why we're not seeing this resulting big surge. I mean, that would be really good news, right? I mean, because they basically said, you know, if you leave your house, you're going to spread the coronavirus. And it looks like a lot of people left their houses, but we haven't seen that giant, massive surge that we were fearing. So, I mean, that that's a little bit of good news we can take away, right? 
Well, it'd be good news if your kids could go back to school, right? <laughs> we need to talk about the short-lived Google outage this morning that my kids thought they were going to have like a technology snow day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the things we're learning in this plague year. It's this week in the CLE. Schools have been all over the map with remote learning because of the coronavirus. So where do we stand now? How many districts in Cuyahoga County are not fully remote? Jane Cahoon, Emily Bamforth put together a pretty fascinating look at how this has evolved. What do we know? Yeah, Emily tracked and and she's got great maps with her story, which I can't uh, portray here on the podcast. So you should look at your, her story on Cleveland.com. But uh it really mirrors what's been going on statewide. She looked at the seven county Northeast Ohio area. And um, so just to, to put things in a statewide perspective, as of an update earlier this month, nearly half of Ohio students were in a remote learning model. But things have been really fluid, as you said, all over the all over the map. Um, so they could I mean, a lot of districts are. You know, they're taking like a holiday break and then we don't really know, you know, what they're planning after that. But for for instance, um, in the in the greater Cleveland Akron area on September 3rd, we had 33 districts fully in person, 26 hybrid and 37 fully remote. But by December 3rd, that had dropped to 24 in person and 19 hybrid. And then it jumped up to 53 that are fully Remote and really the same thing sort of happened uh, statewide. Now, as I said, we don't know what what's going to happen after the holiday break, and they they might just just be taking breaks for like post holiday surges. So we're going to have to keep track in this. Well, you know, we're really not seeing it spread in schools across the world, across the U.S. You're you're not seeing the, the even. Even at the rate in the community, it doesn't seem to be happening in the schools. I think last week, the Emily reported the school numbers actually went down from the previous week. That's probably because everybody's home. But, <laughs> but it's odd that children just don't seem to be the vectors that all the adults are. And so maybe that's a sign that you, you can put the kids back in school. Teachers don't want to hear it. I'm married to one. She's <laughs> back in school and complains about it every day because she's afraid well, she's going to get the coronavirus. But, but you're not seeing that. And you're just not they're, seeing They're really that. a reflection of what happens in the community. You know, I mean, it's not that kids are going to school and, you know, it's spreading like wildfire there. It's, it's all tied together with what's going on in the community. Can I add something in here? Sure, Laura Johnston. It's funny because we get the emails from the school district when every time there's a positive test for a staffer or a, or a student. And we've gotten in the last two weeks and it's like, well, the kids are not in school, but they're letting us know that somebody's got coronavirus anyway. Because, I mean, I think that's their standard at this point. Um, and But it's like, yeah, well, they're they're not getting it at school. Yeah, I look, I just I can tell from my own personal experience, it's just not spreading in a big way the way people thought it might. I, I will not be surprised if come January you have most of these schools back in session, especially with the vaccine finally starting to uh, to get out. We'll have to see. Anyway, check out Emily's set of maps. It's an interesting thing. Heading into Christmas, the kids are home as our own. Laura Johnston is well aware. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Do hundreds of lawsuits filed across the country put into peril the solutions that our forefathers created a century ago to fight pandemics? 
Chris Ranowski, reporter John Coniglia, put this all into perspective. The idea that 100 years ago, health departments were created because we needed tools for fighting pandemics. And now, man, they are under assault in every way possible. Right. Just like our elections. The, um, <laughs> they, no, but you're right. It, it's, it's after, you know, after a, a century of essentially living with these, these, these health boards and these regulations and, and these, these methods of, of attacking a, a pandemic that were put into place after the 1918 flu pandemic. Um, there are, you know, a lot of these things are kind of under assault. There, there are a lot of lawsuits that have been filed throughout the country that are threatening to erase a lot of these measures. And, you know, of course, what happens at the end of this sort of depends on, you know, what judges decide what and how far up the the legal chain these things go. But, but John looked at a handful of of lawsuits that are, you know, sort of midwestern lawsuits that are you know, sort of taking different shots at this. There's uh, three parochial schools in Lucas County where Toledo is located. Folks are saying that that, uh, county officials there overstepped their authority in a sweeping order that forced adolescent students to take online uh, religious courses during the pandemic. In Pittsburgh, there was a lawsuit filed that says that health authorities, that attacks the right of health authorities to shut down a diner that did not enforce a mask requirement. And in Chicago, two churches say that the restrictions uh, limited in-person worship and violated their religious rights. And these lawsuits and dozens of others claim that the powers granted to like lo- local health boards as a solution to pandemics uh, are unconstitutional, even though the people who survived the 1918 pandemic viewed these boards as kind of an important solution for the future. And you know, and the argument that a lot of these, you know, a lot of folks are making is like, why do these boards have power? And why, you know, I don't elect these people. How do they get to make these decisions? It was kind of the, you kind of heard that early on in the, you know, when, when Amy Acton sort of became the scientific face of the state's response to the coronavirus, it was like, well, you're not an elected official. How do you get to make all of these sweeping declarations? And, and, you know, and that's what these health boards and these, you know, these people are supposed to be doing. And, you know, I think, I think you're starting to see it, it you know, again, it, it's, it'll be interesting to see if any of the, the authority that these boards have are stripped away, but, you know, I can't, I can't foresee a serious challenge to it at this point because it's, even though it hasn't been the most effective, it's the, it's what we have. And, and, you know, you haven't seen any really serious effort to sort of uh, redo this system and, and re reconsider how we do it. So this is kind well, of, well, I mean, we're still in the middle of the pandemic. I mean, right. in 1918, it was when they looked back on it, they said, okay, we, we've got to do something. Look, we've, We've ourselves criticized health boards because of the, especially in Cuyahoga County, their complete lack of transparency and their, and their complete inaccountability to the public. But, but I just find it interesting that this assault is taking place with no thought to a solution. Instead of sitting back to say, look, what is the best way going forward? Things have changed a lot in the past hundred years. What is the best way to deal with pandemics? You, you would think that the government certainly would have the right if you are a danger to me because of your infectiousness to keep you away right to to, because otherwise if you can walk around free because it's a personal liberty issue you can kill people you know you could be typhoid mary but it it does seem rulings 
have been going against them. We had it happen with uh, the gyms in Lake County. A judge ruled that the state doesn't have the power to shut down the gyms. And there have been a lot of attacks on it. And it's just universal. And John's story, I think it's at hundreds. It might have said thousands. There's a lot of lawsuits right. against these things. Well, and but- I, I just wonder, you said, I wonder whether we get to what you said, where we sit back and say, like they did after 2018 and say, what is the best way to deal with these? We will have another one and it probably won't take a hundred years. Well, but you know, if you, if you look at how both our state and federal government has worked as of late, we don't, you know, our legislators are too busy, you know, making special appearances on cable news and trying to impeach the governors of, of states that are trying to address this problem. And so they're too busy to actually do legislation and to do things that might actually help us. So what happens is, is these decisions get kicked over to courts to, to effectively, you know, legislate these issues on behalf of a, of a, of do nothing legislatures at both the state and federal levels. So, so, but, you know, but, 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 wait, but is there something else going on though? I mean, is this really more of an evolution of American political thinking that back in 1918, we were much more all in this together? There was much more of that spirit of communal progress, whereas today it's individual rights, that this is really about the the growth of the individual right in America than it is communal health. I think it would be the latter if I thought that these lawsuits were were not I mean these are disingenuous. I think a lot of these are disingenuous. I think a lot of these are 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 ta- are sort of undertaken by the same people who are, you know, 5G truthers and vaccination trooper- truthers and and you know the anti-mask folks who, you know, are you know, are are efforts that are not necessarily that organic. You know, these are these aren't average everyday Americans. These are I think these are people who are are highly motivated to be anti whatever the government is telling us to do. And and, you know, except it, except they're doing what the leader of their government is telling them what to do. I mean, they say, I don't want to be a sheep, but they're actually being a sheep that Donald Trump. You, look, you brought the election up as a joke at the front of this, but mm-hmm. that individual right thing do, does seem to also pervade that. I mean, you actually have people <laughs> suggesting they sus- secede from the union because they lost the election. I mean, what wacky times we're living in. I, I just wonder if if we've become a bunch of prima donnas who believe our individual rights supersede anything that is communal. But the but, whole idea that I shouldn't have to pay taxes because why should I give money to the government? I don't want the government. And, you know, is that growing? Look at the number of people protesting in Washington with absolutely zero evidence of any fraud protesting regularly saying the election was stolen. It's- right. But also, but also look at how many people were, were out in the street celebrating after the election. I mean, again, we have to, we, we tend to sort of look at this through the prism of, 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 you know, the person that speaks the loudest, you know, is the majority. And, and that's not the case. And, and yeah, we we're currently sort of reaping the, the sort of after effects of, of minority rule. And, and, and that's sort of what these, you know, what the election effort, what the anti-mask effort, that's all that really is, 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 is trying to sort of satisfy the will of the minority of Americans over the majority of Americans. Who- all right, all right, all right. But, but Jane Cahoon, how many people in Congress who swore an oath to uphold the Constitution joined the ridiculous Texas lawsuit to overturn the election? I mean, this is this is not some fringe this was a huge number of people in congress right 
Right. Including the, um, you know, Kevin McCarthy, the, the minority leader of, of the Republicans in Congress or in the house. Um, we had, I think it was 126 Republicans and, um, about five from Ohio, unless some joined over the weekend, but the thing got thrown out anyway. But, but yeah, we had like Jim Jordan, Bob Latta, Bill Johnson, Bob Gibbs, and luckily, and, we had uh, Dave Greenspan, a guy that we kind of had liked in the past. Oh, yeah, that that was another effort. That was, I'm sorry, were you talking about? No, the no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing that in, yeah. too. It's just. Yeah, they so, are. They were urging Dave Yost to, to get all on on board with with that lawsuit. There were, yeah. you know, like but, 40, but, 40 of them from the Ohio House. But there's, you know, if, if you go back to 1918 and you go back and you look at you know, we tend to, we tend to look at things in a vacuum in, in like, this is our, this is, this is unique to us. And it, and it really isn't. If you go back, you know, these same forces existed then as exist now, you know, this isn't, you know, it's not like they're reading out of a new playbook, the tools that they use to, to disseminate their disinformation might be different. You know, back then it was pamphlets, back then it was newspapers. Now it's social media. Did you have members of Congress en masse trying to subvert the constitution in 1918. I bet if you go I, back and look, I, I, bet, I guarantee you there were lawmakers. I mean, there were, there were wild, wild political parties back then as well. You know, I mean, you had, you know, whether there's the no name part, you know, I mean, you had all these weird fringe political parties. The thing is, is they just were, they weren't platformed the way they are now. And, and it's, it's, you know, I think what we're, I think the collective unity among these people is more a, a result of, of their ability to do so through technology, you know, as opposed to being able to sort of dismiss their ridiculous arguments by just brushing them aside, you know. And Well, the one thing and, I said, I think we got to move on, but I think the one thing you said that really resonates is that we have people in lawmaking positions today that will not be able to come together and so what they did after 1918 i'll be surprised if they do anything similar because it's so divided got to move on it's this week in the cle what is the cleveland clinic freezer farm and why is it about to be one of the most important places in northeast ohio or Johnston, it's the plague year. We're talking about freezer farms. <laughs> That's right. And it's not actually a farm, but it is a big space that the clinic has that is rows and rows of freezers uh, to store the vaccines. And this is really important because of the Pfizer vaccine is rolling on out. Trucks carrying this much anticipated vaccine left Michigan on Sunday morning. And it's a logistical challenge because it has to be stored at negative 94 degrees Fahrenheit, transported on dry ice. And then they've got to go in that freezer farm. And so I can tell you all about it, but there's very specific rules about how the clinic workers are going to check the thermo scanners to ensure that they stayed ultra cold and how long they're allowed to have them out of the freezer. Um, and then how they're going to get them from this freezer farm to the refrigerated units in the hospitals. But it's very complicated um, and they'll be mixed together, used within six hours once they come out. The clinic and Metro Health are among the first 10 sites that Ohio is choosing to send these vaccine shipments. And then the VA uh, in Cleveland, the Lewis Stokes Cleveland VA Medical Center, is also getting vaccines. It's among 37 sites across the U.S. where the VA is going to send the initial supply. And, of course, the healthcare workers are going to be the first in line to get these. 
Uh, you know, 100 degrees below zero. I didn't realize you could make freezers to keep stuff that cold. I wonder what the what the the outer limit of a deep freeze really is, because that that is dang cold. Okay, Did I jump You're in with... here for a second. Yeah, well, yeah, Sorry. Jane Jane uh, we we just got a notice that Governor Dewine's going to be making a brief statement uh, this morning as vaccines are being received by Ohio hospitals. So uh, just stay tuned for that. It's going to be happening. Uh, any minute now. And I bet he says wear a mask. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Got to leave it there. I don't know how long this is. We're having technical difficulties. And actually, I think it's mine, not any of yours. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE.